We'd all love to spend more time outside, to see more birds, have more fun, connect with friendly people. Our happiness depends on it. But modern life can push us away from nature. Enter Berta. Berta is the free new app that boosts your birdwatching experience. Fun birding challenges, leaderboards, and cool badges turn seeing bird life into a game. And better still, all the sightings go to help bird conservation. Come bird with Berta. Sign up today. It is free. You can find Berta, that is B-I-R-D-A, on all app stores. Look around your home. I bet there's a bunch of bird-related books or art. And of course there are, because, well, birds are your obsession. If you're looking for a great way to discover more bird-friendly brands, bird artists, authors, and so much more, we'd love to introduce you to BirderBox. BirderBox is a subscription service that sends you a package four times a year filled with birdie things that allow you to dive deeper into your passion. BirderBox is the world of birding unboxed. Learn more at birderbox.com. That's B-R-D-R-B-O-X-X.com. Hello, and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. Every 17 years in parts of the eastern United States, billions of periodical cicadas emerge from the ground as if from some subterranean alien invasion. As you might expect, this inundation of insect protein provides a buffet for birds, mammals, and other small predators. Like many of you, I suspect I have witnessed this. I have a vivid memory of the last periodic cicada outbreak in my part of the continent about a decade ago and watching flickers and red-headed woodpeckers and great crested flycatchers and summer tanagers just absolutely gorging on those big, meaty, and apparently delicious insects during the two or so weeks when they seem like they are everywhere. There have been some studies looking at the impact of these outbreaks on the nesting success of birds. Turns out a bounty of food means generally better success for chicks raised during that brief period. This feels awfully intuitive. But as it turns out, there are other impacts that are less obvious. Two D.C. area ecologists, John Lill of George Washington University and Martha Weiss of Georgetown, asked the question, if birds are gorging on cicadas, do they have enough of an appetite left for their typical diet? And what impact does that have on the ecosystem? As it turns out, when birds are busy eating these slow and abundant cicadas, they don't eat as many caterpillars. And those caterpillars, in turn, eat a lot of tree leaves. They looked at one common species, the eclipsed oak dagger moth caterpillar, and found that during outbreaks of periodical cicadas, those caterpillars were eating about twice as many oak leaves as is typical, which in turn causes the trees to grow more slowly, as evidenced by tree ring studies, and, and could, if it happened more than every 17 years, probably have an impact on the growth of these forests. That said, these cicada outbreaks are intense, but they are short in duration, and the death of billions of cicadas does release nutrients back in the soil, which could benefit plants in subsequent years, and the tunnels that they make do allow air and water to get in places where they don't always get. But this study does show how interconnected these things are and how consequences to these short-term shocks to the system can be profound. Anyway, a, a neat study on a phenomenon that I think many of us have experienced. There's more on that in the show notes. On the show today, we're reaching back to the archives to bring you a COVID-era conversation with Bridget Butler, practitioner of slow birding, a practice that has seen many adherents in the last few years as birding, as therapy is becoming a more popular way to enjoy birds. We'll get to her after this week's Rare Birds, but first, a message from ABA Executive Director, Wayne Clockner. 
Hi, this is Wayne Klockner, Executive Director of the American Birding Association. For over 50 years, the ABA has been serving the community of birders in North America by providing news, resources, and connections to assist birders on every step of their journey. And we need your help to continue into the future. By making a gift to the ABA, you're providing us with the resources we need to continue producing world-class stories from inside the world of birding, like the ones you've heard here on the American Birding Podcast. You'll help us continue building ABA community and the ABA Community app, a place for birders to discuss all things birding and get advice and ID help from community experts on the go. And you'll help us continue producing birding and North American Birds magazines with in-depth information and stories from the world of birding and bird conservation. Please make a gift today by going to aba.org slash appeal or by calling 800-850-2473 and help the birding community continue to grow and thrive. Thank you. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of November 2023. Things have not been letting up as this is turning out to be one of the biggest Novembers in my memory. We've got a lot to get to, but first, a quick correction. I mentioned an eastern towhee in California last week. That is not a current bird. It was a record from 2021 that popped up in the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook feed and gave the impression that it was a new sighting. I apologize for inducing stress in any California birders who might have been caught off guard by that. Anyway, on to the new stuff. We'll start in Texas, which has seen an extraordinary string of rarities that does not seem to be slowing down at all. The latest two include a third ABA and third Texas record of mottled owl at the Santa Margarita Ranch, which also recently boasted brown jays and bare-throated tiger heron. Mottled owl is the neotropic version of our familiar barred owl, and recordings of the owl's vocalizations were followed after by impressive photos taken of the bird itself, both previous modeled owl records in the ABA area have also come from the lower valley of Texas. The first, a roadkill record in 1983, and the last one before this one from 2006. A couple days after the owl was confirmed, the ABA area's third and Texas's first record of gray-colored Bacard was discovered in Cameron County. Both previous records of this widespread Central American bird are from Southeast Arizona. The ABA area first gray gull that has spent the last few months in the Florida panhandle was discovered again, this time across the border of Florida and Alabama on the Dauphin Island Ferry, where it will represent a first record for Alabama. We always love it when birds share the excitement across state lines. Ontario had a pair of firsts this week as the province's first glaucous winged gull was photographed at Point Paley and the province's first western flycatcher was seen the same week at Rondo. Flycatchers were on the menu elsewhere in the ABA area as Pennsylvania's first gray flycatcher was seen in Mifflin County and South Carolina's first Cassin's Kingbird was seen in Anderson County both this week. A long expected first record for Utah this week came in the form of a hepatic tanager at Salt Lake. This species is a regular breeder just across the border in Arizona and has previously been recorded several times each in Colorado and Nevada. So Utah was a bit of an outlier until now. 
Newfoundland's first McGillivray's Warbler was seen this week at Conception Bay. This is the third G in the East this week with other birds seen in New Hampshire and Connecticut in recent days. And one of the most unexpected phenomena of the season is the ongoing ancient merlet invasion in the Great Lakes. Multiple individuals have been seen recently in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Ontario. But the wildest so far comes from eastern Tennessee, where an ancient merlet on a reservoir near Chattanooga represents a first for that state. Those are all the highlights for this past week. But for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at ABA.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all of the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and on ABA Community. If there's one thing that this year has taught birders, it's how to appreciate your immediate surroundings. The the cancellation of festivals, international trips, heck, even many local bird walks and meetings has encouraged us to be more present and to be more local. And that is something that Vermont naturalist Bridget Butler has been pushing for a long time as part of her slow birding initiative. I am happy to welcome her here today to talk about slow birding and how birding can create a connection to yourself and the place where you live. Welcome, Bridget. Thanks for joining me. Huzzah, Nate. Thanks for having me. Of course. So yeah, tell me a little bit about this slow birding initiative. What were you seeing in the birding community or in yourself that sort of precipitated this change of focus? Yeah, it goes back to, there's two big moments, I think, in in my life that kind of helped me um, formulate this whole idea of of a different way to approach birding. I think the first one, unfortunately, was my first introduction um, to birding and the hmm. birding community. Um, it wasn't super pleasant, oh, unfortunately. Oh, I was living out on Cape Cod. I was working for the Massachusetts Audubon Society um, at the Wellfleet Bay Wildlife Sanctuary, which is a just gorgeous spot out there. Um, and, um, you know, my focus was really on, uh, on wildlife in general. I was like a generalist mm-hmm. in terms of natural history. Um, but birds were definitely of interest. I, I think at that time, the birding community and in, in that place, the birding community was um, probably a little bit more intense than <laughs> naturalist communities. And so, um, you know, the demand that was put on naturalists there to deliver birds, to identify things quickly was was very, very high. You know, people come to the Cape for a, a number of different types of species of birds. And so all the naturalists there were were very, very skilled. Um, and I was not one of them. And I got put down a lot. You know, we have this word shaming now. We didn't have that back yeah, yeah, in yeah. the 90s, right? So now I'm like, oh, that's what that was. Um, the funny thing was, is that I was seeing a lot of rare species before anyone else, and I didn't even know it. Hmm. Right. So here I was, I wasn't the person, I, I wasn't comfortable on bird walks with birders because there was this competitive aspect. Yep. There was an aspect that was kind of guarded, like uh, the Hudsonian Godwit is here, but I'm not going to tell you where it is kind of thing. Yeah. Um, And I really, I didn't really like that. And then to come to find out that I was the one that saw the scissor tail fly catcher before anyone else on Fort Hill one year. And I had seen snow geese before it hit the phone line this was back in the day when all those rare birds were put on (laughs) oh phones my goodness you had to call on a hand line (laughs) to get the bird report like this is like so pre-ebert so so that really turned me off and i was just like oh i don't like 
that just got totally shoved aside. And it wasn't until I moved to Vermont and Vermont just has just this much more laid back attitude. Um, and it just shifted for me. Everybody was really welcoming. They wanted you to find birds. They wanted to help you get on birds, Mm -hmm. see different things. And it really changed for me. The, the first sets of birders that I met in Vermont were just great mentors. And oddly enough, a lot of them were like, Oh, I'm not really a birder. There's like (laughs) group of people right that are like oh i like birds but i'm not really a birder yeah, it's funny that I, I've, I've heard that before it's almost like the sort of intense sort of gatekeeping aspect that you were discussing earlier it's like people don't want to be associated with that so they say oh i'm not a birder which is kind of a shame for birders because you are a, obviously they are a birder they're skilled at bird identification they enjoy birds like what else are the characteristics of a birder but yeah it's a, it's a shame that that sort of intense nature of birding in some places can very much put people off. Yeah. And and have you noticed too like the difference between how we like name ourselves like I'm a birder or am I a bird watcher? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like that whole difference as well. Um and I and that definitely totally stuck with me. And I yeah. and thinking about how to make more birding accessible and welcoming to everybody was a big part of what I thought through with slow birding. Mm-hmm. The second big thing that happened in my life that changed my birding practice was kids. <laughs> no, I hear that. Yeah. So like, you know, we have three kids. Um, they're uh, seven, eight and nine right now. And man, it just shifted. And so even though I don't feel like I'm a, I'm like a core lister, I don't really know what my number is. Um, I do keep bird lists and I do use sure. bird and things like that. And I would chase a bird every once in a while, right? Like I missed the painted bunting that showed up. (laughs) That's a cool bird. You want to chase that. Like you want to see that. Like I get that. Yeah. Right. (laughs) But it wasn't like my total drive. And at the same Mm -hmm. time, having kids, all of a sudden I was like, I can't just pick up and go. Mm -hmm. Like I can't just go whenever I want anymore. And so it really shifted my focus to what's in front of me right now. And how do I make the most of that, that moment? Yeah. And so these are all the kind of things that kind of came into play for me with, with slow birding and trying to slow things down and not finish once I had ticked off the species or once I had, um, you know, learned the bird song and the identify identification together. It's Mm -hmm. like, how, how much deeper can I go? And that's, that's kind of where slow birding was born. Do you think there's a, a type of person or a personality that sort of takes to this slow burning philosophy more readily than others? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, it's sort of a chicken and the e- chicken and egg sort of question. Yeah. Like, is there a I definitely think there are people who have sort of a personality to want to, you know, see everything before they move on to another place and are less inclined to, you know, see something and then move on. Not I, And that's like, I'm not putting a value judgment on either of those. I think those are both like two kind of two sides of the same coin. Uh, but I definitely think there's a kind of birder who would hear, oh, slow birding. Well, that's, that's really something I want to, I want to be involved with. Yeah. That I want to try. Yeah. So there, I guess a couple things have happened to me. Like I, part of me thinks that there are some people um, who have gravitated towards it, who, who do have a big fat list and mm-hmm. they have traveled around a lot and now they're looking for something new or 
they're older. And so they can't, um, they're not as able to go everywhere. Mm -hmm. They're not as physically fit as they were when they were in their twenties birding. So being able to stay in one place and still fine tune their skills and their awareness Mm -hmm. is really attractive. There's other people who I've run into who it's very freeing for them, Mm -hmm. where I had one participant in a slow burning weekend say to me, you just like took a huge weight off my shoulders. (laughs) And she was one of these people who travels all over the world. She hires guides wherever she goes. Mm -hmm. And she was like, now I can just be in my backyard and enjoy what's there. She was feeling guilty for spending time in her garden and not birding during the month of May. Hmm. And I was like, man, there's so much to discover about what's in your backyard in that month. Like what's moving through, what's possible, what shows up that you never thought would show up before. Um, And so that, you know, that piece is also part of slow birding as well. We, I try to get people to think of if you stay in one place and you're making observations, even on a daily basis in that one place, what is going to be revealed to you? Mm-hmm. Even right down to something like, you know, the starlings that are there every year, really simple birds and taking like pleasure in those common birds or the birds that maybe you kind of poo poo yeah. other times, right? Um, what else does that bird have to give you as a gift in a way about connecting with nature? Yeah, it's really interesting that the idea that someone would feel guilty for not going out and birding. I I definitely feel, and this is just sort of my sense, that in the last, I don't know, maybe decade, certainly in the last like six months or so, there's been like a change in birder priorities, or at least a change in how we value those priorities. You know, for a long, long time, you know, the big list was the end all be all of a birder. And I definitely feel like there have been more people sort of approaching birding in different ways. You know, there's been a celebration of approaching birding in that way. I'm curious if you've seen something similar. Okay. So, so just imagine like I'm thinking all these things in my head about slow birding and I'm Mm -hmm. starting to launch these programs and I'm trying to wrap my head around like exactly what is it that I'm trying to do? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden these books start to come out. Like, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Crossley's um, bird ID. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So the first time I saw that book, I was like, what is this? This is crazy. It's like a mashup. I wasn't big on photographic ID field guides to mm-hmm. begin with. And I like, just didn't understand it. I was like, that's just a hot mess. And then I went and saw him talk and I, And he talked about how we, you know, like left brain and right brain and how the left brain is really analytical and how the right brain is really like about the big picture Mm -hmm. and synthesizing like all those different pieces that go together. And then it all made sense. And I was like, oh, I get this now. Like seeing the bird in place on that plate that he has in that book. So that was huge. And then Like the other ones that started to come out, the Birding by Impression by um, Carlson and Rosselet. Right, yeah. That was huge for me. Like, I was like, yay, okay. That went beyond, what is it, gestalt and the the jizz thing that, you know, we talked about years ago with birding um, and just pushed it a little bit farther. Um, I loved the section in there and I can't remember um, if uh, Carlson or Rosselet wrote it, which one, but it was like a, a sidebar about noticing robins and just spending time 
with robins um, and noticing all the different behaviors and things that we can notice when normally we're just like, ooh, American robin and, mm-hmm. and we're off to something else. The other work that really informed the stuff that I'm doing now is came out of um, the uh, eight shields work um, done on nature connection, right? So John Young's book, What the Robin Knows, speaking of robins, right, let's really slow down and, and listen and look and absorb all we can. So those things kind of validated what I was thinking and helped me kind of then think more about what I wanted to bring to people and how I wanted to make birding more accessible to more yeah. people. Yeah. It's almost like uh, birders were looking for permission <laughs> to, exactly. to approach it a different way. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. And I, and again, like I get that a lot that people are just like, Oh, like this counts, right? Like it was important, but that's that belonging thing, yeah. right? So yeah. You certainly. want to belong as part of this community. And I, and if you're told you have to do it this way, which is right. why it, it didn't feel good for me way back when, when I was on the Cape mm-hmm. and there was that intensity to birding, I really wanted that to, to mellow out a bit. And so <laughs> that's, yeah, that's what I'm, I remember all the crappy stuff. So that I Yeah, right. That's the stuff that sticks better. with you. <laughs> so how do you turn someone who is perhaps, you know, this devout twitcher, this devout chaser of birds into a slow birder? What are the processes that you sort of introduce to them? Yeah, and I'm still trying to figure that out. And each workshop, you know, there's one person who comes in that's ready to like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna get a huge list of birds this weekend. And when, you know, the first three slides, you know, into the first talk go, and I'm talking about robins and song sparrows, you can see (laughs) them start to be like, "Uh uh-oh, that uh uh-oh look comes on their face. Um, so there's a couple things. I think things that have worked for me on my walks is just kind of, um, well, slowing the pace down even more. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I try to do on a walk is to stay with the bird as long as the bird is there with us and notice as much as we can beyond just the identification. I can remember one time um, being out with a young woman that I was mentoring and we came upon this group of cowbirds and we could have just been like, okay, one, two, three, four, five cowbirds. Great. Let's go. But what started happening was the birds were moving and using their bodies in ways that was a little bit different. I was like, okay, here's this little, you know, gaggle of cowbirds all sitting near each other on a couple of branches. And a couple of the birds started to do this weird like bill thing where the bill would go in the air and then they would lean really far forward and the, the, um, the wings would go out and they would do this weird flutter thing with mm-hmm. their wings. And then another one would do it. And it almost looked like they were going to fall off the branch when they were doing it. Now, four of the birds did it and the fifth one just sat there. And after a while, we were like, what is going on? And the one that, one that was still... And one that was falling over flew away. And then the other ones flew in the other direction. And what we surmised, especially after we went and grabbed one of the Stokes Bird Behavior Guides, mm-hmm. was that we had a female and a bunch of males. And the males were all displaying for her. Right. So it's really kind of getting people to key in on the other stuff. Like, mm-hmm. okay, we got the identification. Or maybe we don't even have the identification. What, what are the other things that we can start to look at? So I think switching up bird walks that way, also getting people to think on those bird walks that 
Like our goal isn't to like cover the whole trail. So we make sure we get every single bird. It, it's to kind of experience the birds that we have in each moment, no matter what they are. And I also think that takes a lot of uh, pressure off of the, the leader mm. of, the, of the trip too, because I, you know, I've talked to young people about, you know, they're wanting to get into leading bird walks and a lot of them feel kind of anxious about it because maybe they don't feel as though their bird ID skills are up to whatever level they feel like they need. But if you focus on the stuff that's right in front of you, and this is what I always say to them, it's like focus on the birds that you see, not the ones that you don't see. And I think there's a kind of a, uh, a tendency to maybe perseverate on the birds that you missed. You know, you missed it. You can't, can't do anything about that. But you can yeah. still have wonderful experiences with the ones that are right in front of you. And I think it opens up this world of being an interpreter, of being a leader of a bird walk to oh, so many more people uh, yeah. who would be very good at it. Okay. And then think about the one participant who isn't really the birder who came with like the partner who is the birder. Mm -hmm. And they came just because they want to support them. You, you know, I want you to go and do these things. And they stay in the parking lot, right? Mm -hmm. And then you come back and the the person in the parking lot is like, you won't believe what I saw. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I think we've all, all had that experience. Yeah. How many species I saw in the parking lot. Yeah. So that gets to the other um, practice that I use with slow birding, which is using sit spots. I do this in two ways in getting people to pick a sit spot close by near them, something that's really easily accessible that they could maybe go to every day for 20 minutes and just spend 20 minutes. 20 minutes is the goal. Cause I feel like 20 minutes gives the birds that opportunity to know that you're not a threat mm -hmm. and get to you, especially if you come to the same spot over and over again. And so either develop that sit spot routine um, right near you as an individual and keep a journal, write down what you see, map out where the birds go, move to and from, write down whether you know what they are or they aren't, um, describe some of the behaviors that you're seeing. The other cool practice around this, and this I learned from the bird language workshops um, that I've attended and taught um, with the White Pine program out of Maine, is this collective sit spot approach, which is so fascinating. You know, when, when we bird on a walk, there's a leader typically, mm -hmm. and you're keeping a list of what you see and you're noting things along the way. And a good leader will draw stuff out of other people and, and um, you know, use their knowledge as well. The, the bird sit spot kind of collective practices when you have a group and you all kind of spread out on the landscape and sit apart from each other, but in a way where you can still see someone else. And when you come back, you kind of map out what you've seen together. And it's really amazing the stories that you can tell because birds move across mm -hmm. the landscape. So one person might have one part of the story and the other person might have the finished part of the story. Um, so that's the other piece that I really love that's part of slow burning is, is sitting on the land um, noting what you see over time and then coming back together to kind of share those stories and draw out that whole group experience together. Yeah. You talk about slow birding as, as building this connection to yourself and this place where you live. And, and that's something that really resonates with me. One of the things that, you know, I notice a lot is that in a lot of different subjects and a lot of different worlds, the world of food, the world of wine and beer and et cetera, is like localness. I can't think of the yeah. word I'm looking for. It's such yeah. a big part of it, right? 
So when you when you eat local, you're eating this food that comes from nearby and you are, you know, getting in touch with this culture of this very specific place. Well, like there's nothing more local than birds. The birds of a given place are so unique and tell you so much about what's going on there. We're we're talking about local like in that locality. I can't think of the word I'm looking for up here, but yeah. um you know, birds really touch into this 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 impulse this cultural impulse as well to kind of connect with place yeah. and, and the richness of that place that makes it unique yeah. and special. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And I think the shift when I had kids was I can't go far away. So mm-hmm. the sit spot practice became so much more important, not only for, um, you know, connecting with birds, but also for my mental health yeah. as well as a, as a parent with three little kids. Sure. You know, I discovered things I didn't realize were happening in mm-hmm. my yard, right? Like yeah. um, I'm in uh, a small um, city in, you know, rural Vermont. Um, I'm up near the Canadian border, right near Lake Champlain. And the, you know, the Green Mountains um, are on the other side of where we live. But I, I'm surrounded by houses. And so I kept thinking I've got to go somewhere else to like yeah. get good birds, like to get the good birds. And what started happening was I was just noticing who was moving through during the spring and the fall, who was nesting on the property. Man, the falcons that are in the city here hmm. are awesome. So we have merlins. There's a pair of merlins that nest in the city here every hmm. year. Oh, wow. And then a pair of cooper hawks as well. So I've really gotten to know those birds well. I know where the starling nests are everywhere from, um, you know, bus stop birding with my kids. Like this is another thing that we do where it's like you walk from home to the bus stop. Like what are, what's our bird count from here to there? Mm -hmm. What do we notice? All of those things. So, or even like, what are the birds feeding on? I think right now um, in our yard, we have viburnums and dogwoods. Mm -hmm. My neighbor's got some black raspberries. And the the yard is rich in birds. Our neighborhood is rich in birds because there's all these food sources. So then that gets me looking at what's on the landscape that's keeping these birds here and, and how can I improve it? So I think like slowing down and noticing has just made that connection even right to my backyard and my neighborhood so much deeper. Yeah. You were recently featured in Birding Magazine uh, talking about a backyard big year. Yeah. I think we frequently associate like big year as perhaps the least slow version of birding yeah. there is. You know, it's intense. There's like the time constraint built right into the name. Um, how do you reconcile these two seemingly opposite types of birding? Yeah. And you know, what's really funny. So the, um, the, uh, my colleague and good friend, Rob Fergus mm-hmm. is the other person that um, wrote about this um, in the most recent issue. And, and he is so much more intense about like just getting <laughs> as many numbers down. And here I am like, you know, we're slow birding in the backyard, doing our backyard, big year list, just like t- two totally different ways to kind of, to kind of look at that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in part, for me, it was, I was attracted to it because I was like, oh, wow, I, I have no idea what's possible. Right. I have mm-hmm. no idea really other than, you know, the feeder birds. I know my feeder birds and all of that, but this is our sixth, sixth year of doing it now. And, um, I've been constantly surprised at the, the number of species that we've come up with. I think where our highest year was in the seventies 
we're we're right around 64 species right now for our yard and it's just it's kind of fun now we have a um an idea of who to expect and when we all have great ears for what's out there and so when something new starts singing in the yard like everybody's everybody's keyed in on it um and as a family activity, you know, I thought I was just doing it for me so I could still feel like <laughs> hurting, but everybody's into it right now. And there's even, oh God, that competitive thing is coming in again, even with the the backyard big year version. You know, my yeah. husband's not, but he's getting a little cocky with how he, <laughs> up, you know, getting his own birds up there on the list before I do and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So, it, it, you know there's they overlap i think sure. and again it's, it's just like i can't travel around and go you know jetting from state to state um or even driving from state to state especially now right to mm-hmm. kind of complete that big year but i can have a big year every year right where i am yeah I, i've been really gratified to see in the last few years um how the concept of a big year has changed you know it used to be a big year was the you know, ABA area, uh, you mm. know, Alaska to Florida, you know, Newfoundland to San Diego, the other way, you know, as people like Dorian Anderson came along and did a biking big year. And then there are people who are doing green big years or people who are doing, you know, lower 48 or just like finding different ways to use this idea and turn it into something that is less about the numbers and is more about just like a meaningful experience. I think that's yeah. just just a wonderful thing, changing the perception of what birding is in a really positive way. Yeah. And giving people more access points to birding as well. Right. Like I think about the whole five mile radius birding thing that started over the past couple of years. I got so jazzed by that. I was like, Ooh, and I'm not one of those people that pops up on eBird as like the top birder in our County and Mm -hmm. all of that. But that year that I tried a five mile radius year, I did like for the first three months. (laughs) proud of that a little bit of validation there yeah yeah a little bit of validation that like and some people were like Bridget how did you find this I don't know I just started driving down a different road than I normally (laughs) yeah right we all get used to our own little favorite spots and and bubbles for birding and Mm -hmm. and all of that and it's it's when you take that road that you haven't been down before that you really start to kind of I don't know just like reconnect and discover new stuff totally You've been kind of a voice for this for a while, but do you think that this sort of ongoing pandemic is forcing birders to get into this sort of slow birding routine? I, you know, I don't want to say it's against their will because it's not like it's no. a punishment to go birding close to home, but but it's definitely a change in your priorities. And I've seen a lot of people taking this on or taking on things that are very similar to this yeah. slow birding idea. Has has that been really interesting to see? Yeah, I think so. I you know. I joke around that I was like so ready for the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) I was just like, at least someone was, thank goodness, (laughs) right? And um, and and honestly, it was pretty good for my business because it was like, oh, Bridget's doing this. Like, how do I embrace this more, Mm -hmm. right? So it was good. I was able to provide you know more programs for folks who were like, all right, I'm ready to make this shift. Um, and it was really cool to see other birders across the country in different places kind of being like, wow, you're not going to believe what I saw, mm-hmm. you know, two blocks from my house today, like just amazing stuff. So it was, I think it was just really cool to see that happen. And again, it just brought 
birding to so many more people. And I think too, right, like going back to this mental health thing, Mm -hmm. it gave us something to kind of, I don't want to say distract, maybe distract us from just for a few moments from all of the other stuff that was going on. Yeah. So yeah, there's a bird everywhere. You know, I started leading urban bird walks in downtown St. Albans um, this winter. People were shocked that there were Cooper's Hawks and we actually saw one on the walk. I was so thankful because here I am like, blah, 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 (laughs) just in the city. And boom, there they were right over the parking garage. That's always a good feeling. Yeah. (laughs) You're like, okay, phew. All right. I can relax now. Right. Like they're, they're there. And I think rather than looking beyond the house sparrow or looking beyond the starling or the grapple or, you know, whatever it is, whatever that bird is um, for you is just kind of taking that moment and trying to look at it through a different lens and see it differently. And I'm the pandemic definitely did that for a lot of people. Bridget Butler can be found online at birddiva.com. You can learn all about what she's doing and get some information on slow birding. Uh, Thanks again for chatting with me. This was fun. Oh, Nate, thank you too. And hey, anytime you want to come back and do birds and beers online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way, as always, to support it is to join the ABA. Not only do you get to support community projects like this podcast and the other wonderful things we do, but membership gets a lot of great benefits, including magazines, discounts to partners like Olympus, OM Systems, ABA membership gets you a 10% discount on OM System cameras and lenses. Depending on what you get, that pays for your membership right off the bat. You can find out how to get all that at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Brenda Day of Spokane, Washington, Kimberly King of Riverside, California, Tim Letty and family of Boulder, Colorado, Jay Russell and family of Needville, Texas, John Wheelock and the Wheelocks of New Egypt, New Jersey, and Skylar Wilson of Birmingham, Alabama, all of whom recently joined the American Birding Association, noted this podcast as the reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Hey, did I mention ABA memberships make a great holiday gift? You can give the gift of birding to any bird lover in your family, in your friend circle at aba.org slash join. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Wayne Klockner, who's fine with slow birding, but hates it when people take their sweet time getting on the pelagic boat, a process he derides as slow boarding. Technical production is by John Lowry, who was taken to listening to the audiobooks of the complete works of William Shakespeare at half speed, so he can really take the time to enjoy the language, a process he calls slow barding. Additional help comes from Maggie Fitzgibbon and Greg Neese, who are incensed at the new wedding trend, where the wedding party like walks ponderously down the aisle to take their places, what TikTok refers to as slow briding. And most of the time, it takes like 17 mini videos to get through the whole thing. These Zoomers are out of control. You can find us online at aba.org, on social media, most everywhere as American Birding Association. On Blue Sky, we're at ABA Birds. Questions, comments, come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Bird Like Tom. We'll see you next week.